education is key, but we also can't sell consumers short and assume that they aren't doing things to inform themselves or taking steps when they know what options are available. And there are a lot of options available that can help people make the privacy choices that are best for them. And people have a whole range of personal preferences when it comes to things, particularly like photos that may vary wildly between whether I feel comfortable with a picture being posted and tagged versus whether Chad does. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. Data privacy. Just saying those two words together probably conjures a whole host of emotions, ranging from suspicion and fear about the way corporations collect and use our personal information, to amazement at the quantity and variety of digital products and services that our personal data buys us access to. As any lawyer would tell you, privacy has always been a tricky issue to pin down on its own, and the digital age has made that even more obvious as consumers seem both more willing than ever to share private information about themselves freely online and simultaneously more concerned that such information might be used improperly. For today's episode, we're going to be talking with some tech experts who deal with these issues every day. First, we welcome back to the show Mercatus scholar Jennifer Huddleston-Skees. Jennifer's research focuses on the intersection of emerging technology and law. Welcome back, Jennifer. Thanks for having me here today, Chad. We're also joined on the phone by Shane Tews. Shane is a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on cybersecurity and internet governance. Thanks for joining us, Shane. Thanks for having me. And finally, we have another repeat guest, Brendan Borderland. Brendan is a tech and cybersecurity reporter at National Journal. Thanks for coming back on the show, Brendan. Happy to be here. So I, I typically start with a really broad question on, on these topics and then narrow down as we go. But this is one of those issues that I think works better in the reverse, where it's, it's a big thorny issue. So it's just better if we dive into a specific case study or example to help people kind of get a, a feel for what's going on. You know, based on the news lately, I'd like to just start with California. Uh, California's governor announced recently that he'd be proposing something called a data dividend. Uh, as of recording time, we don't really have a lot of specifics about what that means. I just want to toss it to you guys. What is this data dividend? Why does California feel the need to propose something new? Uh, and what do you see coming out of this proposal? So we don't necessarily have a lot of details yet on what exactly this proposal would be. From what we've heard kind of in the state of the state address and generally about California policies, it seems to kind of be based on this idea of we'll hear terms sometimes like data is the new oil or data is the new gold, that somehow your personal data is of value. And so what the California governor has been proposing is that theoretically, if it has a certain value, then you should be entitled to some of that value. And so he would actually place some kind of burden on companies in California to pay consumers for the use of their data in some way. Yeah. And that obviously raises a ton of questions. I mean, for one thing, um, uh, the governor has been incredibly vague about exactly how um, you, you go about, a company would go about repaying a consumer for whatever sort of data uh, they've collected and whatever sort of value they've, they've garnered from that data. Um, I think it's an open question how you can actually measure what data's worth, uh, whether you're going to do it just as sort of an average. I think Axios looked at this and, and, and found that um, 
your average uh, Twitter user, it was about like $2.50 uh, worth of, of your it's data. It's really low. <laughs> really low. I think Facebook's like $7. But obviously, that's different based on engagement. Um, I can imagine like a, a really high engagement Facebook user, a Twitter user, that data would be worth significantly more to the company. Um, I never go on Facebook anymore, so my data is probably not worth anything. But, you know, I think there's a question of, of how much uh, money uh, companies are going to have to spend to, to track that, right? I mean, that by itself, if you have to go in at a granular customer by customer level and say, well... They've, they were th- they were this engaged this month, this engaged that month, so their data was worth this much in February, this much in March. I think really quickly you run up into a pretty significant cost c- compliance area, you know, w- that these companies are going to have to deal with. Um, but again, we don't know if that's going to how it's going to be structured. So there's a lot of questions. Uh, but again, you know, California is kind of leading the way uh, on these uh, regulatory issues. Well, they got part of it right from a free market perspective. I always remember a friend of mine back in the '90s when she go, "How is everything on the internet free?" And, you know, early on, you kind of figured out there was somebody was paying for this somehow. And, you know, we realized eventually it was the ad based network. So your your data is worth something. And so that part of it, they're getting right. Uh, it's how you actually manage the relationship between your data and what the value is that you don't really need a legislator or a regulator in there. That should be part of the free market equation, which we missed out on on the first round. And there's kind of an opportunity now maybe to shift this over as we're seeing part of the tech lash, people concerned about, you know, all their information being out there. You know, people were happily giving away information all the time. You know, I'll, I'll do it for free shipping. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happily like, you know, or that extra 10% off, I'll absolutely tell you what my favorite flavor of latte is. So I think that it, it'll be interesting to watch this. And hopefully, we can focus on the part of it that they're getting right. And the tech companies would understand that, you know, there needs to be a better relationship with their customer slash consumer. But I don't think having California go at this again, you know, you said it was vague, I would say it's, it's just as vague as the state law they just passed on privacy that'll go into place on January 2020. Yeah, and I think it'll be intriguing to see how the tech companies respond to this. Uh, and it, it, you know, I, I think that the uh, the California privacy law that passed last year that goes into effect in 2020 is a pretty interesting sort of case study here because initially the tech lobby did try to to come out pretty hard against that, and I think realized very quickly that 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 wasn't going to work. Actually, it could be counterproductive. Now they've turned to Washington to, to try to defang it at the federal level. It'll be interesting to see if they come out against the privacy dividend issue here. I uh, would imagine they're going to try it first, but I think that. Again, they might find better luck uh, in Washington than than in Sacramento. Uh, We'll see. I think it's obviously going to depend on what the actual proposal is. uh, And we're probably a few weeks out, I think, at at best on that. This also puts some of us in an interesting position because we're usually for states' rights. And all of a Mm. sudden, people that we consider to be more socialist have found states' rights. (laughs) You know, maybe we'll find that on other issues, too. I think it also raises an interesting question there of, you know, again, a lot of us typically want to allow states to try different regulatory models and whatnot. But when you're dealing with something like the internet, that by its very nature, it's borderless. I mean, it's it's hard enough to have different countries regulating it, let alone different states. You're potentially in a situation where one single state like California becomes the de facto rule for the entire country just because it could be easier if I'm going to have to pay to comply in California to make that my default for the entire country. Yeah, and not to shift topics here, but but the, G- the GDPR, the Europe's new data privacy regulation. I mean, that's the, the same issue there as well. Maybe not quite as as uh, big a deal as California for American companies, but at the same time, if you want to operate in Europe, 
you got to change your compliance regime and structure. And if you're going to do that for Europe, you might as well do that for the United States. In, in some ways, you kind of have to. So it's, we're sort of seeing this race to the most onerous, I guess the companies would say the most onerous regulatory structures. And, you know, it kind of only ratchets up California. Yeah, I'm, Europe, I'm glad right? you mentioned GDPR. That's the European Union's general data protection regulation that was implemented last May. I'm wondering if you guys have thoughts about that. Specifically, we've had, you know, a little over a year of kind of experimentation with it to see how it's going. Well, I think it's interesting to to the point that was just made of you have seen companies and not necessarily tiny little startups making the decision of are we going to continue to offer our product in Europe or are we going to close off that market? Several American newspapers are not available in Europe. Still, they've chosen not to pursue GDPR compliance. At the same time, you've seen actually the people that have been able to deal with the compliance the best are the big tech companies. So Google and Facebook haven't seen quite the same dip in ad revenues or market shares. That's not to say it didn't have any impact. That's not to say compliance wasn't costly, but they're better able to internalize those costs than you know some of the smaller companies that really have had to decide, is it worth this cost to continue to operate in Europe? There has also been reporting out there that venture capital investment has fallen pretty dramatically on the tech and the tech front in Europe as a result of this. That's that's what the government agency came up with. I think it was like twenty five percent or something like that, which is pretty significant. Venture capital is struggling over there. Um, there is sort of a sense of how much do people want to invest in tech platforms and startups in Europe when they're investing so hard and heavily in compliance and, and not so much in innovation. I, I definitely have seen that concern raised more and more uh, in the GDPR context. Well, besides the economic effects, there's been other knock-on effects around cybersecurity. So law enforcement and police don't have access to as much information. They're still working through that with the you know with the data protection People, um, intellectual property and trademarks uh, have used publicly, you know, public records and public information that has always been available when people are are stealing copyright and all that has gone dark. A lot of that has gone dark now in the um, the records in Europe. So there's there's a lot of interesting side effects besides just straight up, you know, having a European in your um, your system. You you know, some people have just chosen, as Jennifer said, not to do business in Europe at all. I think we've seen it with the LA Times and I think the Chicago Tribune. And there are probably workarounds. They're expensive, which goes back to Jennifer's earlier comment of, you know, this means that the big guys can figure out how to weave around the regulations. But for smaller companies, that's a huge cost. Well, and if nothing else, then you're investing your cost in complying with these laws rather than coming up with your next new innovative product. Right. I do think there's a potential for the things to calm down over the next few years. I mean, part of the issue right now is we have a very limited set of cases where the EU has actually gone after companies. Uh, there was just recently a fine against Google, uh, relatively significant, but kind of a drop in the bucket for Google. Um, but I think companies around the world are nervous just because they don't know how it's going to be. You know, it hasn't even been a year that it's been um, enforced and people don't really know how it's going to be enforced. And, and who it's going to be enforced against. Um, if it mostly goes after the big companies, uh, which I think people are kind of assuming it will, I think some of the smaller startups might start to think, well, maybe we have some wiggle room here. Um, it's going to take a while, though, I think. And, and I think in that time period, you're going to see significant changes in, in market structure over there and probably over here, uh, while, while companies, you know, I think maybe go overboard on compliance until things sort of settle out and people start to realize where the regulators are, are going and where they're coming from. The most annoying thing has been the cookie, the cookie notice that yeah. has 
exported itself to the United States, the irony being that Europe was just about ready to get rid of the cookie notice. And I just think a bunch of lazy lawyers have told their clients, if you put a cookie notice on your website, you're GDPR compliant. <laughs> yeah, it's actually worse in Europe. I was, I was there in, in August in Portugal, and every single thing had a compliance cookie notice multiple uh, pop-ups yeah like every page. every page on the same website yeah it, it does <laughs> it does get annoying i you know i understand that the the need for consent and, and oh, all that stuff and but. i think that also though goes to a point of how these things can backfire at times of when you're constantly getting notices you're not paying attention mm-hmm. to any of them you know when gdpr was coming out and you were getting 15 emails a day or whatever how many of them did you actually read and how many of them did you just click yes to when you're getting a cooking notice on every website are you actually thinking about it or are you just clicking okay 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 right you don't read them i call them the mattress pad of the internet you know those little tags you have in your mattress pad that says you can't remove it and you don't know why because you've never <laughs> it. yeah and the other thing is from a metric perspective you know website operators know that the tolerance for friction is about three seconds and then people will leave you know they'll abandon their their shopping carts you know they just we've gotten so used to the expediency of using the internet and the fact that regulations are now going to jam us up in the beginning i mean i know that there's certain websites when i go there the reason like mail.com is one of them it takes so long for their ads to uh load that i just get off i get tired of it but if i have to start doing that with cookie notices it's the tolerance level is going to be interesting to see what people are willing to take yeah, and I can just offer anecdotally that at least, particularly when I'm on my my mobile phone, I'm much less than three seconds, and I think if I see a single pop up, I'm gone, no matter what it is. You're on a different app, <laughs> exactly. But we've talked a lot about California and Europe so far, so I, I'm just wondering: is that sort of where we are right now, where really ambitious reformers in sort of individual locations are engaging in data privacy reform opportunities? Or are there other examples, right? Are there other U.S. states sort of experimenting with different models that we've seen so far? We've seen a bill in North Dakota that was introduced by a Republican legislator, which kind of makes it unique. What's interesting is while we may think of these as typically a kind of more left-leaning issue, that we are seeing the conversation happen on both sides of the aisle and you know, not always fully embracing a, a free market approach. Yeah. And, and I actually wrote a story uh, specifically about that bill a couple of weeks ago. And I talked to the, the representative who introduced it, uh, Jim Casper. Uh, he's got a pretty long history, actually, of, of uh, in privacy involvement, involvement in privacy policy, kind of going all the I think all the way back to 2001 when he was he was introducing financial privacy legislation. Uh, so he's coming at this, I think, from an honest place. It is interesting because he's very much a Trump supporter, considers himself a conservative Republican and is um, very hawkish on Data privacy. I mean, he he talked up the European privacy model, um, said there were some things about California that he appreciated. So his bill actually includes a private right of action, which uh, California's also includes. That allows a um, a consumer who who has concerns about their privacy being violated by a company to to sue that company. Obviously, the tech companies are petrified of that, especially in a state like California. But I think even in North Dakota, that could be a problem for them. And they actually have been lobbying against his bill uh, already. I think it's kind of telling about sort of where the Republican Party is going or where it might be going. I mean, there's obviously a a growing populist streak on the right as well as on the left. I think it generally flushes with support for the president. And in many ways, it's not really compatible with kind of the older Republican model that you sort of see um, 
I think in Washington, especially in the Senate, on the Senate side, uh, where they're interested in a more light touch approach, they're not necessarily interested in hosing the tech companies. That you, you don't see that quite as much uh, in some of the states. Um, again, North Dakota is kind of a weird state. Uh, somebody, when I talked to them, described it as like a Republican Minnesota. And obviously, <laughs> <That's interesting. laughs> yeah. But you know, that said, I, I do think we're going to see more. Republican-led uh, privacy efforts, uh, and I think it's it's sort of indicative of of where the party's going, and and or at least one wing of the party. I think what is going to be a challenge is is explaining to consumers slash constituents the causation that they feel violated at a certain point, which is why you see these people. Or, you know, members and, and legislators are really rushing to take this up, but they're not noticing that one of the reasons why they're feeling violated is because they overshared on social media, which they did themselves. So, you know, understanding the difference between what you actually have, you personally have control over, what the corporations have control over. Obviously, a lot of things have come to light over this past year that not everybody was completely aware of. Um, and, you know, I think that that we have a huge education that everyone's going through right now. Um, there was a good paper that came out last week. You know, I have to admit, I did not completely understand how um, much the apps interacted with each other. It, it made sense when somebody explained it to me that that was their business model. But, you know, it, I think having to separate out how you manage data and, and you can, you know, what, how much that you have control over at a local state and federal level versus privacy is going to be an interesting challenge to watch uh, lawmakers kind of weave their way through because privacy is really more about feeling and emotion than it is like actually controlling data, which is something that corporations and enterprises can understand. And I think in that regard, you know, education is key, but we also can't sell consumers short and assume that they aren't doing things to inform themselves or taking steps when they know what options are available. And there are a lot of options available that can help people make the privacy choices that are best for them. And people have a whole range of personal preferences when it comes to things, particularly like photos that, you know, may vary wildly between whether I feel comfortable with a picture being posted and tagged versus whether Chad does. Federal issues have come up, I think, on the periphery a couple of times, whether it's the division between or the relationship between the federal and the state governments uh, or tech companies lobbying uh, Congress. I'm just curious right now, is all the action on the states or do we have anything going on in Congress at the moment? There's a lot going on in Congress, at least sort of set up uh, a lot going on in Congress, I guess. Uh, So there is actually a hearing next week at the Senate Commerce Committee specifically on the issue of data privacy legislation. Uh, There was a fair bit of activity towards the tail end of last year. Uh, It kind of looked like we were going to get a draft bill from the Senate Commerce Committee, from Senate Commerce Republicans. We still do not have that. Uh, There are a lot of draft bills uh, floating around from last Congress and this Congress, mostly from the Democrats. Some of them are kind of aspirational and and light on details uh, at the moment. But there is, I think, a push uh, in both the House and the Senate to, at the committee level, come up with uh, some cohesive legislation that theoretically uh, can pass both sides. There is a lot. I, I think there, though, there is there is a lot of uh, daylight between the Republicans and Democrats here. I think everybody wants to pass something. Uh, Roger Wicker, the chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee, wants to pass something by the end of the year, which I talked to a lot of experts who find that extremely optimistic. This is just a very complex issue. And I think there are a lot of equities uh, on a lot of different sides that have yet to be sort of explored and, and, and untangled. So I do think this is going to take a long time, but uh, California is pushing people. Um, I think other state efforts in North Dakota, I think, may end up pushing Republicans in particular. Uh, And obviously Europe is pushing federal um, action in this space. 
So I think we're going to start seeing some legislation um, coming out, uh, some serious legislation probably in the spring. But that's just the start of it. And we're going to be off the races and really talking about, you know, light touch, heavy touch, GDPR on steroids, you know, tracking to the California privacy law and everything in between. It's going to be kind of open season. Yeah, I've heard that Wicker has a bipartisan working group at the staff level and uh, there's at least a Blumenthal staffer and a few others that mm-hmm. are engaged. So it's good to hear that they're they're not sticking to their corners. They're actually trying to collaborate on something. Yeah. And, and Senator Moran is also involved, as far as I understand. Uh, and, and obviously, Senator Thune, um, former chairman, now subcommittee chairman, uh, he's he's pretty good on this stuff. I mean, he's just knowledgeable. So it, it, I think there's probably more going on in the Senate right now than the House. But they're gearing up. Apparently, Democrats in the House are gearing up for this as well. So, Well, and of course, there's also been a lot of various think tanks and advocacy mm-hmm. groups that have also proposed model legislation. We just saw a new model bill from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce yesterday. So. Has, Mer- has Mercatus done anything like that? Oh, no, we don't do any model oh, legislation do you do at all. Okay, no, no, no advocacy yeah. work of all, all right. that. Yeah, because I know IT, ITIF put out something uh, a month or so ago. Yeah, and that was, I think, a little more um, industry-friendly, I guess, uh, sort of. Let's just write some guidelines and then we'll see. And, and, you know, a lot of the debate centers around the role of the Federal Trade Commission. Um, it kind of looked like that was going to be resolved relatively recently. Like Republicans were starting to come on board for a more, uh, I think, aggressive uh, role for the FTC. Uh, and then Marco Rubio put a bill out recently sort of rolling that back. So, it, it you know, again, a lot of open questions. I think even int- within the parties, there's a lot of debate that needs to be had. Uh, and um, it'll be an interesting year. And I think it you, you brought up the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and it's important to remember that agencies do have a role here, mm-hmm. too. And in the absence of federal legislation, that's not to say that there isn't any enforcement, that there aren't any remedies for data breach or anything like that. There are existing tools there. The framework is a little more vague because it's been more responsive to particular actions and based primarily in the FTC's unfair and deceptive trade practices authority. And one of the criticisms I've heard pretty frequently about the FTC, it's not so much their fault. Uh, they, they, apparently, they just don't have the resources uh, in order to go after uh, all of the privacy issues that are popping up. Um, they, they've consistently advocated for more resources, which is not surprising for a federal agency. Agencies tend to yeah, do that uh, in my experience. But, but <laughs> what is kind of interesting is that I think both sides, again, this is mostly in the Senate, do seem interested in uh, certainly, I think, increasing their resources. Uh, again, some Republicans are even interested in giving them uh, privacy rulemaking authority, which is kind of unusual for Republicans to, to want to give an agency that. Uh, again, there's some Republicans that don't want that. Yeah, I, I do think the FTC is going to be sort of a crucial player in this. I mean, it already is, and it, especially in any new legislation, it'll be even more crucial. But um, I would look out for a bill that specifically sort of highlights and, and elevates the FTC uh, as sort of the nation's premier um, data privacy uh, authority going forward. Well, one of the important things about engaging the FTC is it's something that companies uh, understand as fines. And we've seen this also in cybersecurity, which is somewhat related to this because of the data protection element, that you know, people just didn't know what was important. And especially at the C-suite level, they didn't understand how much to spend to resolve what question. So people just weren't doing it. And um, Jennifer kind of referenced this earlier. California had a data protection law that, or the um, data breach notification, gosh, about 10 years ago. And anytime you, you are notified about a data breach, it's because of that California law. And that's globally. It just shows that 
you know, it wasn't until somebody kind of set things out as a priority that then they understood how to respond to it. And that's the case a lot of times when it comes to, to businesses is they just want to know what they have to do to, to be um, on the right side of the regulation. And so I think the fact that we've seen the business roundtable and the Chamber of Commerce spend a lot of time in this last year and get down to some basic principles, as well as uh, the National Telecommunications uh, Information Agency, NTIA, did their uh, call out for a request for information last October on on like kind of seven basic elements, principles of privacy. It's becoming much more uh, a topic that is is gone beyond policy and into the boardrooms. I want to get back actually to something that Shane mentioned a little bit earlier as we're kind of winding down here. And that that's the idea of the interaction between law enforcement agencies uh, and, and data privacy issues. And I'm thinking specifically here of the family tree DNA uh, news that broke. And, and actually before the California data dividend story came out just a few days ago, I was already kind of thinking we might do a podcast because news came out that this Ancestry DNA company was sharing its database with law enforcement officials. I'd just like to get your all's take on that. Is that something normal? Was that really surprising to people? Do you expect that to really fundamentally change the privacy debate? And then maybe the, the second bonus question, if we have time, is this idea of genetic privacy that you have you know, privacy rights to your own genetic makeup. Is that something that fits in with the conversations we've been having, or is that a whole new can of worms? So I kind of want to answer the question in Three parts, not two. Um, <laughs> you asked two questions and you're going to get three answers. Um, I think that first I would point out that we have a Fourth Amendment question here and we have kind of your more traditional privacy question as well. So when we're talking about law enforcement, there's a whole nother set of issues and a whole nother body of law that kind of comes into play here. And that really this conversation, I would say, started last fall with Golden State Killer case that was also used in some ways the through DNA matching services that were online. You have an interesting question because, of course, DNA is shared with family members and it gets into, you know, a whole nother realm of science in terms of how accurate are these matches and what exactly is this. So with anything, you know, th- this is going to be an evolving field and an evolving question. I also think with regards to genetic privacy more generally, though, We are seeing more conversations around biometrics and what are the appropriate roles of biometric data, not just in terms of genetics, but in terms of facial recognition, um, in terms of the use of fingerprints and things like that. And we've seen a whole variety of responses. Um, Illinois has a very strict biometric privacy law that has done things like prevented people from using the Google art face match that was a fad. <laughs> but at the same time, recently had a, a rather large court case about the use of fingerprints for annual pass entrance at an amusement park. Biometrics isn't just this really sensitive DNA data. It, it can be much broader than that. And I think that will be a larger conversation. Yeah. And I think some of that conversation is actually going to be driven by what we see in other countries. I think particular China, uh, that's been a big sort of issue area for, for Congress to take a look at uh, when it comes to facial, you know, biometric surveillance and things like that. Uh, I think that's that's going to continue to be an issue, area of concern and an area where I don't think we necessarily want to uh, copy what they're doing. At the same time, I, I don't hear, at least on the Hill, as much talk about um, genetic privacy. I do imagine it's going to factor at some level or, or actually, for that matter, um, privacy when it comes to law enforcement. Uh, it's, it's mostly focused on what I think 
folks on the left would call corporate surveillance. Uh, I don't know what folks on the right would call it, but, but they're worried about it as well. It, it is mostly, I think, focused on on the, the companies when, it, and, and I think particularly the edge providers. That might change. Uh, I think, especially as this comes out, you know, we talked to data privacy experts. They, for a long time, were saying, you know, don't give away your genetic data. Like, you don't know who's going to end up with that. The law enforcement, I think, was the primary concern there. I don't think that had really broken through um, either at the the legislative level or with the public. Maybe this is the thing that will have that happen. Uh, I find it hard to believe that there's not going to be some sort of genetic privacy component in uh, any overarching legislation we see coming out of the Hill this year or next year. Well, I know I need some time to go back to my computer and read the fine print on literally every website and app I use. Uh, So I think we'll call it a day there. But for our listeners who want to know more about data privacy and follow your work on the subject, where should they go online and learn more? And and we'll just kind of go around the table starting starting remotely with you, Shane. So Chad, first of all, I'm going to let you know that they've done a study that it's an average of 27 minutes to read a privacy policy. I actually <laughs> heard about that on Tuesday um, on techpolicydaily.com. That's the American Enterprise Institute space on technology and innovation uh, and the economy. So I've written on privacy several times. That's where you can find that. I'm also on Twitter at Shane Twos. And, you know, all these are topics that I, I love to tweet about and, and follow. I do hope that we get to a point that um, I, I kind of joke, semi-jokingly, but I'm, I'm a little serious, would almost like that we get privacy to, a, that there would be emojis. So I would look at the emojis and know which one's missing that I care about. <laughs> <laughs> so I might be like, they're going to use your photo. They're going to videotape you. You know, sort of like when, you, when you're on your phone, it's saying, does it, it want to access to your, con, you know, your contacts? And you can say no, and sometimes then the app won't work, but then that's my choice. Uh, so ultimately, I'm hoping that we can get down to some very transparent, clearly written, non-legal-esque language so everybody knows what they're signing up to and agreeing to. That's that's my wish for the year. Well, that that would make it a lot easier than 27 minutes per per website for me. So I think, I think I'm on board. Uh, and Brendan? Sure. So I'm a reporter at National Journal. Um, we're, we're paywalled, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, if you're a subscriber, uh, that's great. Uh, you can read all my stuff. Otherwise, uh, I'm on Twitter. We a, a lot of times my, the stories get featured for like a week, so they're above paywall. Um, you know, but I always tweet those out, so please read them. Uh, I, you know, what, one thing I've been looking at a lot recently is some of the sort. I think the um, the under underreported elements of uh, privacy legislation, uh, privacy laws, uh, both here and abroad. Just to get a little wonky in you guys for a second here. You're um, in the right place for that. Yeah. So I don't know uh, how many of your listeners know about ICANN or about the um, – it's, it's called Whois. It's the domain name system um, registration database. Uh, so it's basically like the white pages of the internet. If you have a, a website, um, uh, a domain name, you, could, you used to be able to look that up and you'd find uh, you know, a real-world address, phone number, name, obviously, uh, information to sort of figure out who, who was behind this website. A lot of time it was spoofed, but it still had some sort of breadcrumbs that you could, you could trace back. Cybersecurity folks used to use this all the time. Uh, fraud pre- people you know, in- engaged in fraud prevention online, um, uh, obviously law enforcement. And uh, that actually went dark uh, after the GDPR uh, went into effect in May. Um, and there is a pretty concerted push actually right now to get that um, lifted, at least in the United States. So there actually is a, a new lobby out there. I wrote about this last week. Uh, it's got the recording industry, um, cybersecurity folks, um, fraud prevention people, uh, a lot of actually places you wouldn't expect that are pretty involved in this, um, looking for legislation on the Hill that at least for U.S. domain names would reopen uh, this database, uh, they say that, you know, we can't wait, cybersecurity, da 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 you know, apparently they even used it to, um, back in 2016, to track uh, Russian interference in the election. So 
they are they're pushing on it. There's some interest in the house uh, at the energy and commerce level. Uh, Representatives Lada and Matsui, uh, which is a Republican and Democrat, respectively, uh, both told me that, that they were interested in possibly um, introducing legislation. So uh, we might see movement on that. And I think that would be one of the first times that Congress actually pushes back against GDPR uh, in a pretty significant way. Wonky issue. Uh, I think they're going to have to overcome some some uh, <laughs> glazed uh, glazed faces uh, with congressional staff. But if they can do that, I, I think legislation might be moving. So it sounds that's, that's like you just gave us an idea for a future episode once uh, once things yeah. get moving. So. Oh yeah, I can could we could talk about I can and who is for like an hour and you know you guys might have one audience member left. <laughs> <laughs> and Jennifer, where can we keep up with your work? So I'm on Twitter at, at JR Huddles. Um and then I also blog for the bridge, which I will have a piece on some of these state law uh, data privacy proposals coming out probably in the next week or two. Great. And then I've also um, addressed some of the genetic privacy issues in the past with my work on plain text and uh, tech liberation front. Sounds good. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese for any questions, comments, or episode ideas. Be sure to stick around for What's on Tap coming up in just a few minutes. Until then, thanks to our guests for your time, and thanks for our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Welcome back to the Mercatus Policy Download. I am still your host, Chad Reese, although I am joined for What's on Tap with co-host Kate Delanoy, who's going to share with us what's on tap at the Mercatus Center this week. But first, what's on tap for us is Budweiser's Copper Lager, aged on real Jim Beam barrel staves. So you all cannot see co-host Kate Delanoy's surprised face right now. I did not tell her that it was a Budweiser beverage, but uh, something a little bit different from Budweiser, but also still a macro brew. So I'll go ahead and pour that and we will sample it while Kate is getting over her shock and letting us know what's going on at Mercatus. It's making me rethink all the Bud Light night commercials. <laughs> um, yeah, so that we've got a lot going on here. Uh, for folks who were just listening to the podcast episode, I think they'd be really interested in a paper we've got coming out from Adam Thier and James Broll looking at technological innovation and economic growth. And so it goes through and research is kind of looking at what the connection is between these two things. And as they, as they find that you know, anything that threatens technological innovation has the serious possibility of really shutting down economic growth, you know, lowering living standards, all those things. And so, you know, the case they make is, you know, when we're thinking about how to move forward with technology, we need to be really sure that we know what we're trying to achieve with regulations and things like that so that we don't have any inadvertent consequences. I'm glad you led with that since I think our conversation on data privacy, like any conversation about data privacy, can lead people to start having really pessimistic views on technology and innovation. So it's nice that we get to immediately transition into the more positive aspects of of tech and innovation. And speaking of tech innovation, we several of us were in San Francisco just a few weeks ago. We took the conversations with Tyler on the road and did our very first live show in San Francisco. So we recorded a really interesting episode with Sam Altman. Uh, it was great. Got to meet a lot of really cool CWT fans and definitely encourage folks to listen to the episode and hear if Altman was picking a superhero to uh, fund through Y Combinator, who'd be his pick? So I won't give my very strong opinion away except to say that I'm in Tyler's camp on on, on that one where they had some some slight back and forth. And then out today, we've actually got a brand new paper. This is one of our first papers from our kind of rethought healthcare project, the Open Healthcare Project. And it's really thinking about if the healthcare market was completely reimagined and we didn't have to just think insurance, 
Obamacare, you know, those kind of like binary ways, what would it look like and how could we introduce competition? So there's a paper out by Mark Polly that's really saying, you know, give competition and medical care a chance. So for our listeners who are remembering, as, as you say those words, episodes that we've done on things like broadening the healthcare worker supply uh, by changing some of the occupational standards and license procedures that we, uh, we have for that industry, or the very recent one we did on medical drones, it sounds like that paper is going to be right up their alley. So definitely recommend it to those folks. Also, something that may or may not be recommended to our listeners, what's the word on the Budweiser Copper Lager Reserve? I like it. I mean, I think it's very, it's very drinkable. It has a nice flavor. You definitely get the, is it the Jim Beam? Jim Beam bourbon barrel stays. Yes. So not totally bur- barrel aged. Okay. But you get, you get definitely get a little bit of that bourbon, bourbon feel. One of my favorite breweries, Kentucky Bourbon Barrel. I don't know if you've ever had their stuff. I have. But yeah, uh, big fan of theirs. And so this is kind of, you know, get some notes of that. So I'm going to give this one a 3.75 out of 5. Sounds good. I'm I'm not quite there. Uh, I'm probably like a three out of five. I think this is, in my mind, kind of like a perfectly medium beer. Um, it's a little bit better than just a regular Budweiser. So if you're skeptical about the Budweiser label, feel free to pick it up. You probably won't be disappointed. But I'm not getting the bourbon notes you are. So maybe people with more refined palates like yours will, uh, will appreciate it. So I think that's all for us today. Appreciate you coming on. Let us know what's going on. Cheers. 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 